Hello, Catching Up With Cub listeners. Just before we get into today's show, I have a very small favor to ask. If you love listening to Catching Up With Cub, we would love it if you left us a review. And you know, five stars would be amazing too. Your review helps other listeners find our podcast and it lets us know what you like to listen to. We read every single review, so thank you in advance. Now let's get to the show. Hello, legends, and welcome to today's show. Catching up with Cub, as always, is brought to you by Cub, the Club United Business, Australia's number one members club connecting our country's top entrepreneurs and business leaders. And today, we're catching up with Cub member Peter Scrine of Crescent Capital Partners. Crescent is a private equity firm with over $2 billion under management that invests in a multitude of different industries. Crescent specializes in providing high-level strategic and operational support to their portfolio of businesses under management. Me and Peter discussed the origins of private equity and and, and the the function of it as a business, uh, how to formulate great strategy for businesses, comparing the business to the industry standards, and how to manage a portfolio of companies. It was a fantastic conversation. It's the first episode we've recorded in 2022. I was a bit worried about being kind of rusty, but Peter made it really easy. It was an awesome guest, so enjoy the show. private equity become a thing mid late 1990s and that would have been it would have started in america is is oh private equity was back in the 80s yeah america but in australia it was sort of in the mid late 90s when private equity started to become an asset class that you know was being considered as an investment you know proposition by superannuation companies because um you think about it super started in the 80s under you know paul keating and the labor government and then as people started to build up their super portfolios and the super industry, super institutional, super companies then started to have to think about, well, where are they going to yeah. deploy this capital? <laughs> we need somewhere to put the money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then people like um, Champ and Crescent and Quadrant and these sort of groups that we know of today were the, the pioneers of, of the private equity industry. And so they kind of, uh, you know, the, the founders of these groups or the partners kind of came together and just put up their hands and said to the, you know, the super funds, hey, you know, we're a, new way, we're a new way to invest. Yeah. You know, we're, we're experts in finding great companies and great deals. Give us your money and we'll, we'll turn a hundred yeah. million into to a billion. Hopefully. The, um, a lot of them came out of the banking industry. So they were um, investment banking guys that sort of then built out their own organisations. Um, Crescent came out of the strategy consulting world. So we were sort of the black sheep of the family. So we came out of the Baines, the McKinsey's, the LEK's, the BCG's of the world. And the idea from our point of view, hence the blue collar motive, was um, that we would roll our sleeves up and we would work alongside management teams and deploy that strategic skill set um, to help management make essentially better decisions quicker. Strategy, like I was saying before we started recording, is, mm. is probably my favourite topic. It's definitely something I want to get into. Sure. But why don't we just talk a bit more about what private equity is and Yep. And um, uh, who exactly private equity firms are investing in, particularly uh, Crescent, yep. who you guys are investing sure. in and what type of companies, what size of companies, who are the people that give you the money, kind of go through the spiel. Okay. Um, the overview. Yeah, yeah. So private equity as a, as a, you know, as a sector essentially is an investment strategy whereby we take institutional capital – whether that comes from superannuation, pension funds, high net worth family office, 
you know, university endowments, those sorts of things, put that into a committed fund. So that fund is then has a, what they call committed capital for 10 years. The idea behind that being that you deploy that capital by way of equity, i.e. ownership in a proprietary or a publicly listed company. And then you then work towards building and growing that, that equity, ideally through a combination of either organic or strategic growth initiatives or productivity, profitability, you know, cost out benefits, and then look to ultimately exit that investment three, four, five, six years down the track through a combination of either maybe a trade sale to another, you know, another industry buyer. Public listing. Listing, um, what we call a secondary, which is selling it to a bigger private equity group. Then the view being that you hopefully deploy the investments back to your stakeholders. And so if they're, if they're committed to a 10-year thing, is that, that's what you said, we what, say, how can they get out three to four five years? So 10-year capital means we as an organisation have 10 years to invest the money, build the money and return the money. Um, and so it's a long-term investment thesis for these investors. It's not like you put your money into a term deposit and you can take it out in 12 months. It's, it's committed. We know we have the capital to work with to actually – something with but if you guys um have a capital event in three years they yes. get their money back. yeah exactly so along that journey obviously because nothing's in a straight line you we a typical fund will make probably eight to ten investments into different companies and so they're they're going to be and those investments might take uh, might be over three or four years so obviously from year one that company is going to be maybe in a point of maturity to divest maybe in five years but the last one you've invested well, in five years' time, if let's say you did that in year four, it's going to be now year nine. So you need that horizon to be able and to get in and out. Is it called private equity because the firm that's managing your money is private or is it because you're buying private companies? Oh, good point. Um, primarily it's private equity because it's not publicly available yep. to the broader you know, market, it's private companies, it's um, – all that said, there are some listed private equity firms in the US, you know, your KKRs of the world and so forth. Um, but it's private capital. It's money that we manage on behalf of other institutions that we can then, I guess, get on and do the task at hand that often is not possible sometimes in the public arena. And, I mean, you guys invest in multiple industries. Yes. And um, are there some firms that invest in one industry or that specialise? Yeah, yeah. I mean – It's like doctors, they come in all sorts of shapes and sizes, you know. Um, There are some private equity firms even here in Australia that favour more tech-orientated, you know, investments or, um, you know, perhaps more retail-orientated investments. We we are a generalist but we have some specialisations or some deep expertise in primarily healthcare and in the industrial sector. They would be two of our bigger buckets of activity over the last 20-odd years. Um, that said, we've also been involved in everything from professional services to retail to tech to mining to construction to, you know, all sorts of things. I can imagine though in times like COVID and or really in any times because you guys are in different, so many different industries, you're almost fighting a war on all these different <laughs> playing fields. You know, that, being, being diverse has its, yeah. has its um, issues in terms of, um, I don't know, right now you might have some – of your investments having uh, labour shortages yes, and you might have other investments um, 
having different issues, you know, and, and so you're kind of solving all these different issues mm. of all the – is that how it is or – Yeah, it, um, I, I guess you take a portfolio approach. So if, you know, if you've got – if you own stocks yourself, then you probably don't have all everything in Woolworths. Um, we try to diversify our portfolio by thinking thematically about the economy. So we look over the uh, – like an eight to ten-year horizon and we try and work out which way the winds are blowing and we have a number of ways that we do that. And then we try to then find sectors that we think ideally have strength in economic growth or some sort of thematic opportunity. Um, our current portfolio is a blend, as I said, of healthcare, industrials, retail, professional services, um, you know, some infrastructure, um, all sorts of bits and pieces. And yes, at some stages, pandemic, um, we had a first in human drug trial business, which absolutely went gangbusters during the, the COVID vaccine, you know, period when they were trialling the drugs because we, we did maybe a quarter of the trials for around the world. Um, pathology business is obviously doing very strongly, but then at the same time we have bricks and mortar retail stores that are finding it very hard to, you know, find a customer and having to diversify and, and pivot to more online strategies and change the whole way that they're thinking about how they go to market. So, yes, at any one time there's always... Lots of challenges. I've got dental businesses that need 30 or 40 dentists at the moment that I could take tomorrow. Um, but they're not available. They're not around, you know. And what's, how do you guys manage that? So that's almost like extreme crisis management because, <laughs> you know, your, your style of business is to have large holdings in other businesses. Yes. And therefore you've got problems that can arise or like COVID, we use COVID, but yep. it happened to all of them. Yep. Some went up, some went down. Yep. How do you as a firm sit there? Because I'm trying to think about carbon. I'm thinking, fuck, that was difficult. You know, just, <laughs> just like there was, I had one business and, you know, managing the, how we're going to, how we're going to, how I'm going to sail the ship through yes. this storm. It was, it was one ship. You've got, you guys have a fleet. Yes. You know, how, how do you best say, okay, crisis coming, storm's coming. Yeah, how do we get the ships in order? Which ship goes left? Which ship goes right? Which one turns into a submarine? Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. What's the process you guys follow? So we have the benefit that we work with senior management teams. So we are not operational in terms of the day-to-day -day execution of activity at, at the store level. That said, we work alongside our management teams and help them think through the problems that they're facing. And so the beauty with that is that we can then deploy – imagine if I could give you – three McKinsey graduates to then look at Cub and think about, okay, what's my growth opportunities? Where's my costs coming from? What's my sovereign risks at the moment? You know, what's my competitors doing? You know, how am I going to grow this business but constrain my costs? I've got issues coming down the line with the change in government. They're going to ban business, business. club, <laughs> you know. Um, I mean, feel free to, to, to provide me all of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I can then provide a team of people who can then look at that run all sorts of analyses around those scenarios and build out four different models that what, what things that could possibly happen so that when you sit down with your board the following month and try to make some decisions, you're actually making those decisions based on qualitative information that you, you've got at hand. And then you can actually then make a call that you believe or we believe is actually going to be the right way forward. That with a capital supportive partner. So if the business does have to go through the valley of death and out the other side, you know that you've got someone sitting behind you that can still write you a check to keep the thing going. Um, so really? So it's a blend of, of, of that sort of thinking. 
Yeah, it's it. I guess you're working with the captains of each of the ship to make sure that they have the best information of this of the storm and the waves Correct. that are coming their way. Correct. To make their own decisions and to focus on running that ship, so they don't have to necessarily keep looking at the horizon. They just have to make sure that every the engineer mm-hmm. and the best boy and everybody's doing everything they should be doing. Mm. It's it's almost like an ultimate mentor position. I guess so. You know, not that you know their business better than they do. They, I mean, they're the CEO. They might be the founder. They might be might be a family business. Whatever it is, sure they they know their business best. But sure. that's why they're the CEO. Mm. But you know, you're you're providing them more tools, more information. If they, you know, if you see something they haven't seen yet, you can you yeah. can share that. And yeah, and that's that's really powerful. You know, we've made over fifty two portfolio investments and and another two hundred and forty odd acquisitions associated with some of those businesses. And so when you sit down with someone and go, I've got a crisis or I've got a problem or how do I think about this, you can by and large probably fall back on some past experience, which is not necessarily the answer, but you can at least say, well, in the past we tried this or we did this or we've had a look at that. Have we? Th- you know, have you thought about how to approach this yeah. problem in this way? I really like that style because – like it's relatable. Obviously, how how much do you guys manage? How much do you have under funds? Uh, how much currently? We two point four billion. Okay, so like you guys are you know you, you're managing a lot of money, and um, but but what we're talking about is not just relevant uh, to you. It's relevant to, to 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 for example me. Yep. Because uh, even me right now, and and most a lot of businesses, you know, you're you're trying to figure out. As like we we're just talking about Cubs expansion and yep. how how I'm handling it, you know, you're trying to figure out. Okay, well, I've, all of a sudden there's more than one ship. Yes, and you know, right now I've got uh, four ships. I've got uh, the three different uh, clubs, and then I've got a head office ship, which yeah. is doing its own thing. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm trying to figure out you know, how do I let go and how do I mm-hmm. let someone lead that and and what's the best process and and what I like was that what I came to, my position being as CEO was what, what you just described. It was really more of an uh, advisor slash mentor role where, you know, they're running it, they're doing it. Mm-hmm. What, what they're doing though is they're coming to you, hey, I've got a problem, I don't know about this, what do you think? You know, oh, look, this is what I would do and this is the reason why. You know? mm-hmm. And and then you're, you're, you're building stronger yeah. CEOs in the sense, yeah, stronger true. people. So it's actually cross-relatable that, you know, yeah. what you guys do in terms of managing your portfolio is what um, smaller companies like Cub can do to manage their uh, growth with, you know, other divisions, offices and and things of that nature. Yeah, yeah. And and the beauty and, – and to give you a sense of that, so Crescent has about 32 people in the firm, which – to give you a – and that doesn't sound like a big group. But, but for a PE firm it is. For our, yeah, it's about three to four times bigger than our peer set in terms of numbers of people. And the reason we do that is because it goes to this sort of consulting management participation approach that we have. And within that group we have specialists. So we have a helicopter CFO that we can drop in and out of scenarios and or projects or add some extra bench strength to somebody's workload to get through a particular – Oh, so you've got like a backup CEO. You, you, this company, this portfolio company needs help. Yep. Set, let's yep. send in uh, what's his name to go yeah. g- give, give him backup support. Or if we're Robin uh, to his Batman. if we're integrating two large companies and we need an extra just a little bit extra firepower in that workload, then we've got a body available to do that. We've got you know a digital director, somebody who can come in and 
pressure test your go-to-market strategy on di- all things digital or assess the quality of the team or what have you. So, yeah, there's all these things that are, like, that a cub probably couldn't afford if you wanted to get a high-level, you know. Well, you've, you've almost put together a dream team, yeah. if you will. Like you've got the best of all the – of you know, the best CTO, the best CEO, the best CFOs, the best finance partners. The, you, you've put together this dream team, which is then deployable to each of your portfolio Correct. companies as support. Correct. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. yeah and that's, that's a, I've always wanted to get into your industry. I just think I'd be good at it. I don't, I don't know why. I have no skills that much, but but I just feel like it would be fun. Just yeah, well, we're, we're a blend of um, people from strategy consulting backgrounds and from operational backgrounds, and, and that's the bucket I fall in. I've come out of industry. And and but, but and again, it, it fits in line with um, what you're saying is that uh, as a private equity firm, you are a lot more hands-on mm. um, uh, than than the other firms. The other firms may be more so at a, a capital partner or, or yeah. I think what happens in a lot of the other firms, they just use third-party providers to provide. Some oh, that's of this, what they do. Yeah, whereas we have it all in-house. And you can understand why they do that because it keeps their costs yep. extremely low. It's a different business model. Yeah, while they're, they're taking their clip on billions of dollars. Yeah, and so we, we sort of go, well, we're, we're an owner of this business, as you say, potentially a majority owner. So we're aligned with, with the outcome and success of this company. We are representing mum and dad's money. You know, a lot of our investors are, you know, industry super funds, you know, Nurses and doctors, um, you know, environment, and we have you know teachers and all sorts of people that are that are that provide us their money to invest on their behalf. Um, you know, we have some some very interesting high net worth family offices out of the US that are doing a lot of philanthropic work that require our returns to help them fund their environmental healthcare industry interests. Um, so we sort of take a lot of responsibility around the capital that we provide and what we represent, and. So you want to make sure that this business doesn't fail. You want to make sure that you can deliver a two, three, five times return for these people. And, and I'm, I'm sure something that's very important in your space is reputation as well because yeah. you don't want anything to fail. Or if you do, you want it to be a small one and you want it <laughs> to be a big one that wins. Well, you're, you're like a restaurant. You're only as good as the last plate you put out, yeah. you know. And so um, – That is scary. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, yeah. Mean, it keeps you honest. It means yeah. that – we walk away from a lot of opportunities that look potentially interesting because we just don't have the conviction um, for that long-term benefit. Um, or and and more often than not, it's the it's people. You know, at the end of the day, you you tend to back people. I mean, your your business is about people, and so you know when you meet someone and you speak with them and you listen to their story and you understand what they're trying to create over a five ten year horizon, whether that is a backable proposition. You know. And and yeah, but back to the strategy and operational. So I mean, you guys don't just talk the talk; you walk the walk. Because you say, look, we're, what we where we fit in the industry and what mm. we're excellent at in, mm. in comparison to other private equity firms is we offer high level, intensive, strategic, and operational assistance. And and in order to do that better than others, we have that all in house, and we have a much higher staff to to funds ratio than yep. than other than other PE firms because we want to be able to get in and help you correct. help you help you run the company. Yeah, yeah, correct. So yeah, it, it's all aligned. It's just it's 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 always fun to see how companies because <laughs> yeah, it, that's a strategy in itself. Yeah. You've positioned yourself that way and the firm's positioned That's our to, point of difference or yeah. our, our USP, I guess. Yeah. And uh, because at the end of the day, as you know, there is 
lots of capital out there in the market at the moment. And it's coming from all sorts of sources, whether it's private equity, venture capital, height net worth firmly office, sovereign funds, international private equity, you know, banks, super funds are setting up their own deal teams. There's an abundance of capital. Um, the key to that capital is everyone says, oh, well, but I want smart capital. And it's kind of like, well. What does that mean? That means I want more than just the money. I want people's smarts. I want someone to be able to sit alongside me and help me build my business, fulfill my aspiration, build out my dream. And um, hopefully Crescent can sort of demonstrate that historically and, you know, that we are part of that smart capital proposition. Mm. Well, I mean, I'd imagine you are. You, it, it started in the year 2000. Yeah, that's right. Imagine billions of dollars, been around for 20-something years, you've got to be, yeah, got to be well, something, you know, right? Your reputation, if it wasn't good, it wouldn't have lasted that long. I guess so, but you never... As I said, you never take anything for granted. You know, we're, we've got a new year. There's a lot of turbulence out there in the economics. You know, you're sort of looking around us. So what sectors are we going to get involved in? What makes sense looking over a five-year, ten-year horizon? You know, what old industries are maybe fading out? That Do we get involved in them? Is that an idea to aggregate a whole bunch of dying businesses to create something out of it? Or, mm. you know, think, I don't know, yellow pages, you know, or video shops. What like, could we turn it into? Yeah, so there's yeah, a bit yeah. of creativity to it, isn't yeah. there? Or is it future thinking? Is it climate change? Is it EVs? Is it, I don't crypto. know, crypto? Is it technology because we don't have enough labour? So what are we going to get in? Automation, robotics? Like, yeah, what about the aviation industry? What's happening there? What about sovereign risk? You know, what's happening in the defence sector? What's happening? Like, there's so many things happening out there at the moment that are exciting because these are the opportunities. But some of them are going to be, you know, just puffs that happen and disappear again and some of them are going to be long-term structural changes in, in the way that we do things and so therefore positioning your investment with a particular organisation that might be at the forefront of that change or as a bedrock or as a new brand, as a disruptor. No, I think that's, 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 that's my favourite part. That's the hard part. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's what I like about that that industry. It's it's a, it's the it's it's creative because it's the strategic side of it. You're, mm. you're analysing industries, analysing companies. Mm. Like you're saying, you might find a dead corpse that you think you could turn into a unicorn. That's right. And, you know, that's all part of the the creativity, the strategy aspect of it. And, and having the bench strength that we have has lent us, allowed us to um, take on investments that others have have passed because it required a different approach or allows us to sometimes get involved in an industry or an opportunity a little bit earlier, given the size of funds that we manage, mm -hmm. where we, we are, have a, a stronger conviction on this particular opportunity to, I don't know, create something by bringing two, three, four companies together to mm -hmm. actually create a, a cornerstone to grow from, where others are looking for that cornerstone already established. So we're, we're prepared to, as I said, roll our sleeves up and- Do some work. Do some work. Do you know, do you know what I like, also <laughs> I like about the industry? It's just kind of like, it kind of started that, you know, f groups accumulated too much wealth to know what to do with it. They didn't have enough places to put it. And so they, I'm sure some bankers somewhere realized, wait a second, yeah, yeah. these people have too much money. They need yeah. help. They need help investing it. I'm going to go, I'm going to go start a, a firm that helps them invest yeah, it. And, so. and, you know, it's kind of like this overflow of money just went and I mean, originally a lot of time, a lot of it came out of the banks because the banks were lending money to businesses. And then they were sort of saying, well, actually, if I took an ownership stake in a business, thinking that they would then lock down that customer to be able to keep lending them money, which was kind of a convoluted strategy, but that's, yeah, how is that? So that's how it's. Yeah, so yeah, like my theory was wrong. <laughs> Quadrant sort of stumbled out of Westpac because of this, yeah, and so forth. It's, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, really interesting. And, and what about yourself? Where, where, where are you from? 
Me? Yeah. Oh, um, I have a very convoluted history. <laughs> were, were you born in Sydney? Oh, me personally? Oh, no, I was born in the UK. Oh, you were born in the UK? Yeah, yeah many, no, no, many, many, many years ago. Yeah. You know, 10-pound pom. Okay. You know, came out in the, in the 60s um, as a kid. Um, my father was in the Navy. He um, was a, a communications officer. He finished his – he was in the Royal Navy, finished his service, decided to come to Australia in the late 60s um, to work in air traffic control uh, in Australia in, at, at Mascot um, and did that for a number of years and then decided that that was that and retired from all that and fell into, um, you know, sales. Um, so I grew up in Sydney as a, as a primary – late primary school kid and then we – Whereabouts in, in the – um, Sydney, Sydney, or in up uh, the coast? Uh, Warunga. Oh, and oh, you're really in Sydney? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. But in the in the early seventies, so Warunga was quite a far, you know, far <laughs> country. away country area. Yeah. I wish I'd bought up. Yeah, you know? oh, God, yeah, you would make. A um, and then my father, being a, a man of the sea, we end up relocating um, in the late seventies to Coffs Harbour. Okay, beautiful. Which, which was a very small little ten thousand person town at the know, time. At the time, and I, you know, had a, um, um, you know, a high school period of my life where I was very, you know, surfer and didn't do a great deal of hard work. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's where I grew up and then, and then finished high school, came to uni here back in Sydney. What did you study? Um, I studied uh, optical dispensing, um, dispensing and then – What's that? It's uh, like that's, optometry? No, optometry is the testing of the eyes. Optical dispensing is the making of the glasses and the oh, contact okay. lenses and things of that nature and um, picked up a cadetship with what was then OPSM, which is now Laxotica and, yeah. Started my um, my working life as a as a as an optician, M- making making glasses, making glasses and helping selling people frames and all that sort of stuff, and and pretty well was based over in Bondi for a but, couple of years. And, and how did you decide to study that? What was the well, <laughs> at high school I was I used to play in bands, and so I was in a pub band, and yeah, we used to have a gig on a Saturday night at the Hairy Grape. And um, in Coffs Harbour, and I decided when I finished high school, I was getting this is you know again you got to remember this is the late seventies, early eighties, and the whole pub circuit, pub band scene was huge, and I was going to be a rock and roll star. And my father decided I wasn't going to be a rock and roll star, and that I should get a profession first and then worry about it. And so yeah, so we sort of had a, a come to Jesus moment, and I came to Sydney. But but, but where did the, how did the profession get? Like I'm just trying to, like when I was at school, no one ever said to me, you know. Do you want to get into making glasses? Oh, okay. yeah, like, how yeah, did you? Yeah. How, how did, did I, you? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, sister's boyfriend was an optometrist. Okay, there's always something. Yeah, like, yeah, there's yeah. some aspect of your life. And I like you. I was like, what am I going to do? Oh, oh, tell me about this. Yeah. This <laughs> He's game, cool, Mark. What's, what's, what, you seem to make good money. What, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> isn't that interesting? How your life, like, just yeah. random, ran, there's these random aspects of life that direct you into but it. That into that was a fascinating journey because I end up being in a number of disrupting businesses. In that time. So um, back then you had opticians who had a separate high street business and you had ophthalmologists who taught and you know, tested the eyes. And that relationship was very commercially strong. And optometrists were these, a bit like you know, early days of chiropractors, they were these wacky guys that sort of tested eyes that no one really trusted. And I left OPSM and joined a, a, a new startup business called Medispecs in, I don't know, mid-80s, who put optometrists and opticians in the same shop which was an absolutely radical thing to do back then. And 
yeah, and created this organization, which is so commonplace today, but back then was never heard of. That is what I love so much about business. It's, you know, everything that's commonplace today is because of business. Yeah. You know, if a business, if, 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 a, if a business person didn't think, oh, we, we can do that better, yep. the world wouldn't even have that. No. You know, it's everything that happens happens because of business. And it was driven out of, you know, what I call convenience and common sense. Yeah, you walk in one door, you get your eyes tested, you come out, you get your frames picked, you get your glasses made and it's all done, one-stop shopping. Yeah, as, as, as most businesses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, yeah, this, yeah. Doesn't, this doesn't make sense. This should, this should be how it's done. So Yeah, so they end up getting sued because the ophthalmologist screamed blue murder that they were, you know, really? unprofessional, you know. Yeah, you're being too rogue. You're and, disrupting the industry too much. And so they built out about a 12-practice group, um, which I was participating in, and then through the suing process we had to sell off a whole bunch of our shops to pay our legal bills. And in the end I ended up leaving that and joining NIB, opening up their eye care centres, which again was a whole new concept of actually health funds providing health insurance services to their members mm. as, a, uh, as a cost benefit. So, yeah, so again, that was a whole new... It was, it was, well, it was an interesting time to mm. be in that space. Yeah, it was. It was really interesting. Yeah. And uh, this is a bit off topic, but um, I'm just curious if you, if you know <laughs> of it. I found an app the other day that literally has changed my life and I'm sure the private equity firms know about it. It's called Milk Run. Yep. Have you guys looked into it? Uh, well, it's very early stage for us. Yeah. It, oh, sorry, it's a bit early stage. But they've just raised about 75, 75 million. million. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This thing, I'm convinced Danny. Yep. That Danny was actually a member of Cub. Okay. Well, that explains his he, success. When he, uh, yeah, must be. <laughs> no, he actually never got that involved because right after he joined, he this busy. is, nah, this is very early. This is early days of Koala yeah. mattressing. Yeah, yeah. And right after he joined, maybe three months after, he moved to Japan, I think, for, okay. for Koala. That's where they, yeah, were, yeah. they were doing it. Yep. So uh, yep. unfortunately he was never that involved, but but he, he was he was a member a long time ago. But I'm convinced Anthony was actually, you know, Anthony from Cub. He, he was he was quite close to my – I never met him. But but um, I'm convinced he is one of the greatest entrepreneurs in our country because I think that this milk run thing mm. is – absolutely genius mm. because not only, I love the business model. Have you looked into the business model? Uh, lightly. Only on I just think it's so clever. And, and, and the strategy, again, to the strategy, the yes. strategic point, yep. their slogan is, I don't know if this is their slogan, but what I think is their slogan is groceries to you in 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah. You know, what problems does that solve? I fucking hate grocery shopping. <laughs> and when I go, and, and literally I'm in Potts Point, Woolworths is downstairs. Yeah, 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 like yeah. it's not hard for me to go grocery yeah. shopping. And when I do go grocery shopping, I always forget one or two things. Yes. And you come home and you go, and ah. I start cooking and oh, I can go back down. You get the milk. Now I go on milk run and oh, boom. Yeah. There's my onion. Problem oh, there's solved. my avocado. Yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. It, it's in, it's, it's, I'm even eating more fruit because I'm ordering daily the okay. fruit I want. So I go, oh, here's an apple. There you go. I thought you looked healthier. <laughs> I am. I am. So it, it, I, I just think that that's, a, I reckon that's going to be, I reckon he's going to be worth it, a fortune. It's really interesting looking at businesses that solve what I call that last mile problem. Yeah, it you is know. that last mile problem. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because you look at the moment, you've got um, your, your big majors, your Coles and your Woolworths, with enormous distribution disruption issues at the moment because of, you know, COVID and mm. following and so forth. So you've got bare shelves and you've got problems in these marketplaces and then these last mile solution guys are just filling those gaps and solving problems. And doing it better. Like I want my groceries but yeah. I don't want to go. And also aligned to, again, this generational change that's occurring. You know, one of the reasons I spoke earlier about joining Cub was to reconnect with up-and-coming business owners 
because the way that the world, the way that you guys think, the way that people are behaving, the way that the, the solutions that they're looking for answers to are different. And, and, and to break out of my paradigms, I've got to down age and understand what's going on. Just have a look at you. Know, I, I really think that guy, that guy's worth investing. I'm mm. telling you, I reckon Well, obviously $75 million of worth of people yeah. thought so. Yeah, the venture capitalists. Yeah, yeah. I think so. And also I just think he's so clever. I'm not going to rant about him, but <laughs> I think he's so clever because Koala – what was what he was doing well was you get your mattress the next day. Yes, it was fast. Yes, and if we go buy a mattress head anywhere else, you know, oh fuck, if they haven't installed, well, you got to go and get it and deliver yeah, it yourself. And how do you carry a mattress back home? Yeah, so really, he changed an industry, but he 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 kept a strategy and a model that he knew, which yes. was warehousing, distribution, and, yeah. and speed to which customer. Which is the key. Yeah, and and he, he changed the industry and just found another product to push through that really same cool. process. I think it's really cool. I just think he's a really clever guy. <laughs> um, anyway. W- 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 Continue talking about you, <laughs> <laughs> but so you, you got you you're in um, in the eye industry and, okay. and what, yep. what 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 happened from there? So uh, I ultimately ended up owning my own two practice group for a while, just two practices, you know, running around, and I sort of realised at that point that I really didn't enjoy being stuck in a in a store, as it were, all day every day, and being tied to that locked in location. As much as it was a very lucrative business and financially did well from it, it was really a case of it wasn't fulfilling my own personal needs to be more. I liked the business of business. I didn't necessarily want to be stuck to one business, if that makes sense. So I just I sold the shops and I just did a little bit of locum work for about six months to a year, just filling in for people when they're on holidays and sick. And then a friend of mine said, oh, you'd be good at selling real estate. And I went, all right, I'll give that a go. Yeah, so I end up. How old would you have been at that point? I was twenty six, mm-hmm. seven, somewhere around there. It's a good thing about your twenties. You, you got you can experiment. Yeah, and I didn't. Yeah, apart from uh, at that stage, I was married, but we didn't have a lot of other major commitments in our life, and so we were just sort of. I thought I'll give it a go, and I end up joining uh, a company called Doug Mal, which was owned by a guy called Doug Maloof of the. Maloof family. I know the Maloofs. I know David Maloof. He yeah. actually lives in this building. Oh, okay. He's a good friend of mine. Well, I bet you Doug's his yeah, he's probably his uncle great or uncle or yeah. something, you know. Um, Doug was a, a, an early pioneer of training of systems and habits and he owned nine real estate agencies and he would run around the market and, and tell people about how to do real estate. And so we were. I worked in his head office as one of his agents and we were his guinea pigs. So he'd try all these ideas on us and we'd have to try and deploy all these various techniques and ideas that he was coming up with. And it was very much around, as I said, systems and processes and habits, which were, again, yeah, something new for the industry at the time. Because the Maloofs are very big in, in real estate. Yeah, very uh, much I think so. David's father's name's Ian. No, that might be his uncle. Okay. They're, they're, but isn't it amazing how one family can just do yep. great at business? Because then their uncle sold what's the garbage company for six hundred million? Oh right, um, Dollar Dump. Yeah, Dollar Dump. What's his name? Something something Maloof. But yeah. the, isn't it amazing how you know? Obviously, that guy might the one you're talking about might be the grandfather. Yeah, yeah, taught yeah. all his yeah, sons yeah. How, how to, how to, how to do, do business. business yeah, and they yeah. all went and did it. Like it's, it just shows you. Like it's yeah. so important who you have in your life. I mean, Doug was very charismatic, mm-hmm. you know, and very driven entrepreneurially, and clearly, you know, was a good success. Um, and I tried to do real estate for about three years and just couldn't kind of connect to it. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't so much that um, – I don't know. You asked me the question earlier, why, why, why was real estate unsuccessful but other things you've done have done well? And I, I just think there was no passion for the product. Mm-hmm. You know, at the end of the day, you've got to have a ticker about what you're doing 
and to me it was a it was a means to an ends but it wasn't the ends to the means if you know what I mean yeah and 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 at that point you didn't know what your passion was not really I was still a search I did a, a marketing degree I did a, um, a business management degree over it and you know and how did you find your passion the, um well, my wife was a promotions director at a radio station <laughs> and um, and she and the sales manager guy said, oh, I can see you're not happy in real life. Why don't you come and sell radio? And I went, sure, yeah, why not? <laughs> you can see there was a lot of thought behind it. And um, I joined this particular radio station as a B2B direct sales rep just selling radio advertising. But what I liked about it was it, was, it, it ticked a whole bunch of creative boxes for me you know you were actually able to deep dive into these people's business understand what their problems were that they were trying to solve and then look at the assets that you had behind you to then think about solutions to help drive an outcome and so within about eight months I'd actually left this local Wollongong station that I was at and took a job with the Triple M network in the early 1990s and it just was like a duck to water moment. All of a sudden I was with this brand that was like a black sheep, you know, sort of a bit edgy, bit rock and roll. And back then that's when it was really coming to. Like yeah. And we had, um, we had a leadership team that were changing the way that we engaged with the market and it was all driven around customer-focused selling, which was a whole new concept back then. And it was about doing deep dive uncoveries with customers to find out what their problems were and really, really come up with solutions that were innovative and then there was the psychology element of actually getting customers to go from here to the store to buy something and changing behavior. And all these things just started ringing bells in my head about, wow, this is fantastic. If I do this and apply that, we get a result here. And then this, you know, the, the client is, is delighted. And so within a very short period of time, it went from direct selling to working with advertising agencies, dealing on big brands, to then suddenly running a, a sales team to running a bigger team, to running a radio station, to over a period of time I ended up working across 12 stations doing what they call a national partnership management position which was working with the Village Roadshow Group which owned, this, owned the network and we by this stage we'd brought Today FM and Triple M together to create the Osterio Network and we had 12, net, 12 stations around the country, we had theme parks, we had cinemas, we had um, – other assets, I can't remember, oh, some hotels and so forth and, mo and, the, and the mobile sampling teams. And my job was then to integrate national brands across that whole portfolio to, and to come up with campaigns that would help drive, I don't know, more Coke sales or whatever. And so what was, what, what's your passion? What's my passion? My passion is… Like what did you like about that? Oh, making people do things that they didn't know they wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so really your, your passion is… Driving like, outcomes. Yeah, making, psychology, driving outcomes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, something of that nature. And then Osteria moved into um, uh, live events, festivals, early festivals in the in the early 2000s. So we started doing, you know, major events. And so now all of a sudden I had a whole new asset class that I could work with. So now we were – and then this was the, the early days of the internet. So now we started doing SMS campaigns and we started doing integrated web campaigns and barcodes – and things like this. So we were doing before, during and after the festival event campaigns that would run over 14 weeks and it would be like, I don't know, you'd go to the movies and there'd be a Coke ad and then in the foyer there'd be die card cutouts and on the back of the ticket would be a barcode that you'd scan to win a free Coke, you know, from a rock patrol that drove past and then you'd go to the concert and you'd have a, you know, a lanyard back then with a little CD-ROM where you could download 
<laughs> screensavers and then you go to the Coca-Cola karaoke tent and win your chance to go backstage to meet Bon Jovi, you know. And, and, and so what do you think crossover, what, what do you think the crossover between um, radio and, and media and, and that whole, I guess, ad, advertising as well mm. space is with private equity? What, was, what correlated for you? I think the biggest thing in all of that, what made all that work for the clients was the fact that we spent a deep amount of time strategically talking about what they wanted to get out of the campaign or what they were trying to achieve for their product or for their business, you know. Um, and so that was, the, that was the big thing, that taking a moment to sit down and actually go through, spend a day or two actually really thinking about strategically what their problems were and how to solve them. And that was deeper than just selling, you know, a million units of Coke. It was more about what else are we trying to achieve here and what are we driving out. And so that was really an interesting point in time in terms of, I guess, to your point, what was your passion, what was your realisation? It was like, I love that. That was really interesting. And then along that journey, the Nova radio network arrived and it really changed the marketplace from a very strong you know, leading organisation, there was a competitor. We, we wound down the live industry along off the back of the 9-11 activity that occurred. People didn't want to go to concerts anymore. We lost a lot of money on, on a whole bunch of stuff. They shut the industry down. I ended up leaving Osterio and going to work for a guy called Bruce Gordon who owns the Wynn Corporation, who's a self-made billionaire character. Win, win like Win Las Vegas. Uh, w I N Win Win Corp. They own okay. um, the guy own, that owns Win Los, the Encore Las Vegas. Yeah. he's a cool dude. He once got drunk and punched through his Picasso. <laughs> not that, that <laughs> not that that's cool, but like you know, it's pretty yeah. cool. <laughs> I like to be rich enough to punch yeah, through my yeah, Picasso. To, to destroy a, <laughs> yeah. a million dollar, hundred million dollar painting. <laughs> no, uh, Bruce is a um, uh, self-made billionaire. Owns about 26 radio sta- uh, television stations around the country. Was a Channel 9 affiliate with Kerry Packer. And um, really interesting. He's still around. Australian? Yeah, Australian. Absolutely. Oh, cool. What's yeah, his yeah. name? Bruce Gordon. I don't know him. I'm going to look him up. Yeah, yeah. You'll be quite amazed. He's got an incredible backstory. I love these guys. They're all like my idols. Um, and Bruce had a couple of radio assets and I went and tidied them up and fixed them up. And again, more strategy, more you know, making these things profitable, coming up with – solving problems around pricing, around staffing, around go-to-market. And you're working very close with Bruce who, like you said, was a, this self-made Australian billionaire. Um, that's an incredible somewhat mentor or, or someone uh, or of the sort to have. Mm. Were, were there any key lessons um, or attributes of him that you witnessed and saw or things that he taught you that you think, wow, that that you know, that's something that um, I'm going to not forget? Bruce is – incredibly relentless on getting an outcome that he's decided he wants. So I guess that driving expectation of bringing all your lieutenants with you and going, we're not giving up on this until we get an outcome sort of approach was something that really made Bruce okay. maybe not stand out from, from self-made men, but certainly was a strength, a a high strength. He was a great, uh, what do you call the leader of an army? (laughs) A great general. He's a great general. He just brought everyone with him and went and conquered. And he also knew how many paperclips were in the business. What do you mean by that? His attention to detail. Okay. So even though he was driving for the horizon, he knew what was happening in the engine room. 
How cool is that? Yeah. So finger on the pulse, but at the same time. Leading, the, leading the charge. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and look, I think Bruce is about 92, 93 now and still out there. Yeah, corporate working. rating and, you know, building multi-storey apartment blocks and, you know, still working just as hard as the day he was when he was probably 22. Yeah, know? I'm convinced people like that can't stop working. If they stop working, they'll probably just die. Yeah. Because like they're, they're – And they're, he they're, clearly can afford to. Yeah. <laughs> but they're, they're, they're just their brain – just loves the activity. Yeah. You know, I reckon if you took the activity from the brain, yeah. they would implode. They'd be like, well, yeah, I've, got nothing, well, I've got nothing to do. I'm so not going to go home and play bowls. So yeah. What am I going to do, you know? Um, <laughs> it's interesting. What, what other great, I guess, um, uh, mentors or, or, or um, people have you met? Oh, gosh. Um, I'm very fortunate in my role because I spend my life, my role is, is origination for of deals. of deals. So I spend my life traveling all over the countryside talking to entrepreneurs and business owners and leaders of, of industry um, and so I'm really blessed from that point of view to have such exposure across we have, the country. We have almost the same job. We do, <laughs> you know, which is what makes Cub great because yeah. you get to meet a whole bunch of, you know. Cool people. Cool people who are out there following their passions, you know, dedicating themselves, making big sacrifices, sometimes financial sacrifices, sometimes personal ones to sort of drive out uh, a dream, a, a dream, a, a goal, an aspiration that they've got a you know strong belief in, and so to, it's quite privileged to be able to go and talk to these people and you know get time with them and to listen to their stories. And no one ever set out to be a employer of you know I don't know two thousand people. They all set out to solve a problem. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, I just think business owners are the best. And um, and tell me, um, and the CEO of Crescent, yes, his name's Michael Alsha. Alsha. What do you think – what's something you've learned from him oh. that you that – Michael's – He's probably going to listen, so yeah. along with a lot <laughs> of other careful. people. So you've got to say something real good, yeah. <laughs> uh, I've, I've had the benefit of working with people like Bruce and, and um, you know, really strong CEO MDs like Michael Anderson from Osterio Days or the Kirby family. You know, I've worked with John Singleton. So I've worked oh, you with, work with Singer. Yeah, I've worked with all sorts of really – as you know, very dynamic and, and strong and successful people. Michael brings a really interesting balance or combination of what I call soft skill and hard skill that arrive in equal measure. So he's an incredibly smart, you know, he's got a degree in mathematical actuarial studies, you know, wow. you know, and an MBA and he's got all the sort of hard skill technical capabilities that you'd expect to find in someone from in a private equity industry, particularly someone who's – Well, someone responsible for billions of dollars. Correct. Yeah. But then at the same time, you know, he's got all the skills around, I guess, all the wooing and all the capability of talking to people and negotiating and bringing people teams along with him or – if. Or you know, or not, depending on what he's trying to achieve. So he's also likable. He's got people. He's yeah, got the people yeah. skills. And so. it's really quite a fascinating balance because historically, I've found that people like Bruce, who are very driven and very strong, sometimes their people skills were often lacking. You know, but then or vice versa, people have really strong people skills, but they need a good CFO or a good someone techie yeah. behind them to sort of solve the problems. Yeah. Michael is the full package. Yeah, see, that's rare. That's that's your, I know. That's your one in very yeah, few yeah. individuals. That Which is why I've I'm been there for – I'm certainly not like that. That's I, In fact, I could argue that I don't know many people at all. Yeah, and I've if seen any, him – I'm trying to think of one. Time and time again be faced with uh, a blockage, a challenge, you know, some sort of immovable situation and be able to resolve a pathway around it mm -hmm. strategically and then at the same time – 
bring people or so you know work with the people involved to get the outcome that he sees so no is never a, a, an answer he's never an answer well I've, i mean me and him are the same on that one but but if um what is the what what's the way that michael and yourself and the team look at designing a strategy you know how do you go about it do you say what's the outcome first do you say you know what what's the process yeah. we spend a lot of time looking at so we're in a particular sector so we'll spend a lot of time doing a lot of commercial due diligence looking at the overarching industry what are the drivers what's the um, government positions on this what are the competitor analysis what are all the cost inputs or you know that actually make all this sector work you know what what does historically what does the history of this sector look like? What's our forward projections? We'll talk to government. We'll talk Is to a sector analysis. It's a full sector analysis, a deep dive into this particular area. When, and then we'll run that information against the company that we're thinking about to sort of work out from a benchmarking exercise, where are they along this particular pathway? What influences or, or headwinds or tailwinds are they enjoying? What makes their business better yeah. than, worse than, equal than to all the other businesses that are in this space what's the disruptor what's the why have they got a higher margin what's what's making this business work better so what it sounds like is you kind of map out the key metrics of the industry and then just compare that particular business to those key metrics if one metric is doing better than the industry standard you say, why is it doing better yeah so we yeah. try to understand that and that's our foundation point okay then what we're looking at is we're saying okay looking over a five to ten year horizon what do we need to believe to create a bigger, better business? And and I read in your prep sheets is something about um, um, the end goal, having the end goal first, or something like that. What, yeah, what, what's explain that uh, we, to us? I guess you always start. You're in, it's a bit like going to the moon. Yeah, the, the goal was we're going to put men on the moon. So that's the goal. Mm. Along that journey, we're going to probably zigzag our way up there, and we're going to have to change our navigation, and we're going to have to tidy up. But you always need to know where we're going, what's the strategy, what do we all believe in? And it's not just us, it's all stakeholders, it's all the shareholders of the company, which are typically your founders or your management team. Um, and we need to know, well, what are we doing? Where are we going? What was, what's the purpose of getting up every morning and going through this? What are we, what are we out to build? Mm -hmm. so, so the end goal is just crucial. Everyone needs to know it needs to be I very, think so. very, very clear. clear. Yeah, how can you communicate to your team if, um, you know, if you don't know where you're going. Yeah. Like it's like jumping in a sailboat and going, right, we're going for a sail tape. Well, Fucking where? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, put the sails up, put the spinnaker up. We'll yeah. work it out as we go. Yeah. You know, so we have a very clear vision of what we're trying to do. And we have that, that's all written in a document and mm. we have a very, you know, strong investment thesis. And What's an investment thesis? It's something like a strategic thesis, a yeah, strategy thesis. Yeah, yeah, like, What's that? It's very much because, again, you yeah, know, we've got institutional capital. It's very much around... What are we doing? Why are we doing it? And what does success look like? And how long are we going to do it for? So this is what we think is going to happen. Correct. That's why it's a thesis. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 it's hopefully a robust one based on a lot of input and and commercial information. And information. Yeah. Okay. Incredible. Well, uh, we do have to wrap it up because I right. believe we are at time. But that was an just a beautiful conversation. Um, thank uh, you for your time again. Thank you for yours. Are you you're probably busier than I am, but. <laughs> But um, what I just love about, uh, like what I was saying, what I love about your space is, is the ability. It, you, you said it actually. You're in the business of business. Yes. You know, you're in the business of just all these different businesses, and and you're you're trying to help them mm. uh, become bigger, better, achieve their goals, be more 
um, deploying both capital into the business as well as support in the but form of… But it has of some really great outcomes. You know, we've created so many jobs in this country across so many different sectors. We've established businesses years ago that are now national, international leaders in their fields. You know, they came from 20 little clinics in Victoria that are today are now, you know, in 17 countries or we've got a – we just recently divested a, our, you know, human trials business – you know, and they are. <laughs> Don't put me. <laughs> yeah, but they started off as a little business in Melbourne. They're now in a Melbourne, Queensland, America. They've just been bought by a big private equity firm who's going to continue that expansionary story. And you helped them manage that firm's acquisition. Yeah. You, you know, you you had a bit of firm knowledge. Yeah, look, it's it's brilliant. So that's the I guess the commercial aspiration build out, and then from the, the byproduct of that is the fact that we've been given some fantastic returns to our investors. And, and what? Because so, I never asked, I should have asked at the start. What type of size companies are you guys typically uh, deploying um, capital in? Yeah, so we look for as a portfolio start sort of enterprise values between fifty and one hundred and fifty. What does enterprise value mean? The um, valuation the value of, of the, the business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and, and that varies by industry, obviously, okay. in terms of what size of business that looks like. We 50 have to what you said? About 150 is our yep. sweet spot. Yep. We can do investments up to 400 million and then beyond that we have co- what we call co-investors. Our, our, our investors who are happy to participate on a separate issue and then take us all the way up to maybe eight, 900 million. But our sweet awesome. spot's that 50 to 150. Awesome. Well, I mean, like I said before this started, I'd love to – Come to your office and sure. maybe speak to a few well, people about strategy. The and, door is and, open. And yeah, I, 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 it's my favourite thing to learn. So, yeah, I'll be banging on your door. I know we okay. got Governor Philip Tower too. So. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we'll build out Cub as, a, as an international brand. Oh, we, it certainly will be. I can guarantee you that. Fuck, if you want your money to be extremely safe with huge returns, yep. I'm telling you, put it to us All because right. there's no one going to do what we're what, term No shit. one does what we do anyway. <laughs> the, what we've accomplished is unbelievable. Think I about, think it's great. Yeah, it's and it's 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 been we've gone down a difficult path. We mm. went down the path of it's almost the old school path path of I don't want to say bricks and mortar, but it it was a traditional business model where the scale mm. wasn't the priority. The profitability and the robustness of the business as a long term yeah. asset was always my goal set. And we're pivoting now to the technology side, and that's where the big that's where obviously big valuations are th- going to come. I, I think, and you'll see this more and more going forward. There's been such a disconnection of people over the last two years, and Zoom has assisted us in continuing to main business and and connection. People are deprived of both this, this physical networking opportunity, the sharing of knowledge, the educating of people. You know, there's just a one of the strengths that we have with our little group is that we are actually able to bring our CEOs together and they talk and they share ideas and share mm. problems. And they it's like a mini cub, little mini cub, yeah. you know. Um, and that ability to have someone else you can reach out to who's in a similar position as you, and often when you're an industry leader, you're on your own. So there's that. So Cub's yeah. got a, and I think, want, a huge t- future. Yeah, also think about it like this. Business owners have never been more under uh, put through more stress Correct. and been alone Yes, like they have been. They've Correct. been separated. Yeah, physically. Yeah, physically. In every aspect, they, 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 they're, they're, they're feeling more isolated. They've been through two years of isolation. What's the first thing they're going to want to do? Yep. They're going to want to connect to each other and come together. And who's bringing them together? There you go. It's Cub. There you are. And, Throughout, you wait for the Where do I sign? Oh, hey, I'm in already. Hey, 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 <laughs> we haven't discussed terms. We need a lot of money with some favourable terms. Now, let's finish it there. Thank you so much, Peter. Thanks, I, 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 I'm greatly appreciative of your time again. I, I, 
jokes aside, I know how busy you are and it means oh, a no, lot. That's great. Thank We're you for the opportunity. Very grateful having you in the community. It's a far better community with you in it. Bless so, you. Thank you. Um, to our listeners, um, if you want to find out more about Mr. Peter Scrine and Crescent Capital, you can go to cub.club forward slash podcast and you can check it out all there. If you want to check out Cub on social media, go to at Club United Business on Instagram and you can stay up to date with all amazing things and have insights, lessons and, I don't know, cool things from our members. Um, uh, Peter, thank you. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed the show.